If you've got your note-taking outlines there that were in your folders, you want to be on session four, how do I get started? So that's the page that we're on at the top, session four, how do I get started? And I want us to begin in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you've got access to a physical Bible there in the pews or in the chairs or electronically, whatever way you have. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There, God, through Paul, says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Uh, This um, uh, is one of my favorite passages when we begin to talk about evangelism and how it feels, it makes us feel small and incompetent. It is comforting to me that the Apostle Paul, his honest expression was, Who is sufficient for these things? Because I think that that is the way that we frequently feel. So that's heartening to me. Uh, This is also a beautiful picture uh, in my mind. Uh, I am a very smell-oriented person. Uh, One of the two perfumes that my wife wears is because I smelled it on a flight attendant. And very, very carefully, edited in the absolutely least creepy way possible. (laughs) She got it. I asked her about it so I could buy it from my wife. In contrast, I can't tell you how many times walking through an airport, this happened a couple of weeks ago, walking through an airport and someone's in front of me and I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to pull over to the side here for a little bit. (laughs) Because um, uh, I can get a headache like that, particularly from smells. And so I'm, I have to be just, it's a, it's a superpower that can bite me in the butt. Um, so I can smell a lot of things way ahead when most people can very sensitive, but that has its disadvantages. As we think about the apostle Paul and the way that he thought about bringing the gospel to people, he said, we have this fragrance that we take with us wherever we go. We have the loving fragrance of Christ that we take with us wherever we go. Um, And that's by default. You don't have to sort of put it on like my second son uh, does when he just before he goes to see his girlfriend. You don't put it on and take it off. It goes with you wherever you go. As we go, we are smelled. The question is, what do people smell on you? What do people smell on me? Uh, This is why the bearing of the fruit of the Spirit and repenting when we don't bear it is so important. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is that how people experience you? You could 
ask if you're wondering, um, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, those you're in community with here, your pastors, be courageous enough to ask and humble enough to listen. That's what I've had to learn how to do. What we don't want is Christ's body to stink. And if you read the news or you read the research, that's what many non-Christians say. They experience Christians in their daily life not bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and they react to that. Again, go back to what I said yesterday. What if we were known for respect and gentleness? Um, Recognize that some people, some people, aren't even reacting to Jesus and the message of the cross because they're having a hard time putting up the Christian in front of them. This is why our own repenting, even to non-Christians, is important. We don't want to stink. We want people to smell Christ. Sometimes people don't want to submit yet to Jesus' gospel, but it also ought to be the case that with integrity we can say that we have lived out the fruit of the Spirit before people and kindly and prayerfully mourn at their rebellion against the God who made them. So as you seek by the Spirit to smell right, let's go on and think about why we would and how to form and keep forming deep relationships with unbelievers. The first thing that you need to have if you're going to go about that is to have the right heart motive. What's the right heart motive? Um, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, Uh, exactly this sort of motive that we can have. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As we think about how to go about towards people, we need to make sure that we have the right heart motive, which is love of neighbor. That's all, full stop. That's it. I want to love the person that's in front of me. Pray that for myself all the time. I've prayed that as I've come here this weekend. Lord, help me love the person who's right in front of me. Um, When I coach pastors like Jeff, I'm like, Lord, help me to think about nobody else and make this person sense that they're the only person that exists in the world right now. That's what it means to love somebody, to be devoted to them. Well, how can we do that? Well, to go on the second then, Uh, We have to look at the sole source of heart strength. We can feel very weak in all of this. I feel very weak in it. I speak to you, hopefully you get the sense that although I'm passionate about this, I speak to it out of my own weakness. The sole source of heart strength that we have is the Holy Spirit. Um, John 15.5 said this in a sermon last week in a different church. Um, God's been trying to convince me of John 15.5 for the last 33 years. You remember what John 15 is about, finding the branches, right? And he gets to John 15, 5, and Jesus says something along the lines of, yeah, you can't do nothing without me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm like, but Lord, I, I can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, what fruit is that bearing for me? The fact that we can do things on the physical plane does not mean that we can accomplish things in the spiritual plane. And Jesus is very earnest about this so that uh, if you were to look at some of the other passages here, that, that the glory comes to Him. 
He wants you to feel weak. Feeling weak, my wife reminds me. I don't think this passage is in there. I should add it. Um, my wife frequently has had cause to remind me over the, the many years we've known each other. She's like, Matt, you're in just the right place if you feel weak. Because when you are weak, he can be strong. And that's what Paul was trying to convince uh, the Corinthians in a different place. Right? So the sole sort of heart strength is Holy Spirit at work in us. If you feel weak, you're correct. You are feeling the right thing if you feel weak. Because in the spiritual world, the spiritual fruit world, we are hopeless, me and you. But with Christ, empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit to whom you pray, in Acts 4, the passage is just ripping quickly through them to keep us moving. Uh, in Acts 4, you remind, remember that they pray, they're fearful, Lord, g- give us courage, and what do you get? You get the rest of the book of Acts, and you get the end of the book of Acts, which you'll eventually get to in your evening gathering, which basically, the last word is unhindered. The gospel goes out unhindered because they got that they didn't have this power and they needed Holy Spirit to help them. Asking to understand, receiving, living in light of the whole armor of God, that's Ephesians 6. You and I, we can be powerful gospel servants. But it must be similar to what Paul says in, in uh, Colossians 1.29, right? It's got to be His energy working in you and through you. So the right desire is love, the right uh, motivation, the right desire is to spread the fragrance of Christ, the right motivation is love of neighbor, the right strength is dependence upon Holy Spirit. What do we need to actually do? Um, If there's a secret sauce to what I do in comparison to what somebody else, if they came here, did this, it's probably this. So um, what... The way that I have come to call it is learning to hear people's stories. Learning to hear people's stories. Um, My wife and I have had the privilege of having hundreds and hundreds of people in our home over the years and asking them their story. And we've developed it as kind of an art form. It's second nature to us because we've done it a lot. I get to do it every week of my life as I meet new people. I meet somebody, somebody emailed me today and said, hey, I think I could use a coach. Can I talk to you? And I'm like, great. Talk to you tomorrow. And the first question I'll ask him is, hey, like 10 minutes, can you tell me the story of your life? Um, And the ability to actually want to hear and learn how to listen to someone's story, and not just the 10-minute version, but like the half an hour version. Um, If you ask somebody that, hey, could I hear like the, whatever you're comfortable sharing, the 20-minute story of your life, do you realize that you'll probably be the first person who's ever been interested enough to ask that? They've probably never been asked that before. No one's ever been curious enough about them to ask. As you hear people's stories, um, you're listening for some things. So I'm going to tell you what you're going to be listening for, and then I'm going to tell you how to do it, and then give you some help. The next couple of pages give you some help as well. As you listen to people's stories, you're listening for these four broad areas. You're listening for creation, fall, redemption, and glory. Every person, because they live in the middle of a grand narrative that they have been dropped into, they evidence these things when they speak their story without ever even being conscious of it. 
They know where they came from. They have some sense of what's wrong in their life. They think they have an idea of how to solve it. And they believe what the best life for them would look like. They speak nearly constantly of creation, fall, redemption, and glory. There's a couple of words under each of those that I think are important. Um, When you are listening for where does somebody think that they came from? What's their significance like? Who are they? Uh, You're looking for their origin, and not just sort of, certainly cosmic origin is helpful, so you sort of know where they're coming from. Where do they think the world came from? Where do they think humans came from? Are they accidents? Are they purposeful? Right? Are we just cogs in a machine? You want to listen for that. But also, um, where people come from. Several of you have experienced this for me as I've talked to you this weekend. And I've asked you, well, how did you end up here? Um, and learning how to ask people the journey of their life is really important because they'll tell you their origin story. What I was walking in tonight, and I'm sorry, sister, I've forgotten your name. Your wife's name? Pat is number nine of 12. Now that's a story. Um, Milo's life, I have a last who's a fourth, right? But as a girl, and... Uh, I'm picking up the right person who's got three boys and a girl. Um, but a fourth girl, we was like I have, like the family here has, foreign military. Um, there's a story there. Okay. So everyone has an origin story that helps to form their identity. I'm the younger of two brothers. But when most people meet me and they spend time with me, and I tell them they have a, that I have a brother, I see I played it wrong. Um, when I tell them they have a brother, they're like, oh, you're the older brother for sure. And I'm like, oh, you've never met my brother. Because <laughs> if you think I'm intense, <laughs> you haven't seen anything yet. My brother has organized each of my cross-country moves for me with a spreadsheet that he supplied. I love him. He helped me design a deck from New York. Looked over my diagrams. Anyways, I'll probably talk to him tonight about the stairs for my deck. But there's something there, even in the interplay with my brother and I, and if you can learn to hear that from people, that's important. Where did they come from? How was their identity formed? What was it shaped? I grew up on 20 acres in the woods. My parents were both introverts. There's a reason why I don't do big groups. It was not a skill that was given to me in my childhood. There were other skills that were. I once met a church planter that had been military. and He'd lived like, I want to say like 12 places growing up. I was like, it makes perfect sense that you're a church planter. You can go anywhere and make new friends. And he goes, I know. That's part of how I've received God's shaping of my life. Is this is like breathing for me. Like, you go for it. That's awesome. So, you're trying to listen for people's sense of creation. Where did they come from and how has it formed them? What's their family of origin like? What was there? Right? My second son is dating a girl, um, and uh, the not, I'm home for a day this week, but then I'm home for eight days the next time I'm home. And um, the girl and her mom 
are going to come over for dinner. And I asked my wife, I said, Dad? She said, not in the picture. Hmm. Okay. That's important. That's important to know. That's shaping on somebody who's 19. How long has Dad not been in the picture? What was it like when Dad was in the picture? What effect did that have on you? How does that make you think of God? Those are all really, really important questions to ask. So as you hear someone's story, you're listening for creation. Where did they come from? How was their identity formed? Their sense of who they are. You're also looking for fall. So I added a few things to the diagram here. Right, Originally, there was harmony between the Creator and the creation. Adam and Eve fall. Um, they rebel against God. It symbolized with the, the broken red line, right? So there's now a brokenness uh, that can be healed through Christ with the hope of the new heavens and new earth because of His resurrection being the first, not just of people, but the first of everything. Okay? So, um, the fall. What is the sense of brokenness that I experience in my life? Most people, and this is an advantage of culture as it is right now, most people will very freely talk to you about their brokenness. That is a huge advantage um, over uh, what I would call my parents' generation, where you never showed any weakness, you never told anybody about the dirty laundry, you never told anybody about what you struggled with. And that was a lot harder to reach people. Because they had, there was like this, it was like this impenetrable wall, and there wasn't, you couldn't figure out how to get in. Where younger people will just tell you, "This is this is what's messed up about me." That's a, that's enormous, because we know that within with within only creation, there's not enough answer there. There's half measures at best. Because Christ is the ultimate solution to all of our brokenness. So what is their experience of brokenness, both personal and otherwise, in their family? Uh, and who do they blame? Why are they in the pickle they're in? And that's super important, whether they can own some of it for themselves or whether it's all external to them, right? You got to try and figure out why. How did they get there? And do they have a cognition? And is it a, is it a true story? Or is it a story they've told themselves to feel better about themselves? Um, because we do that. We try and write a story where we end up as the good actor. That's 80% of all people. The 20% of people who don't write a story like that feel as though it's absolutely impossible that anything could ever be better and their life will always be horrible because it is their fault. Both can be reached by Christ but it takes a different path to walk into it. So you're listening for creation, people's sense of origin and identity, fall. What kind of brokenness do they, do they experience and who do they blame for it? How do they think that life can be different? So redemption. How can they be saved? Small s. They're not thinking about salvation through Christ. But how do they think they can be saved? What could possibly make life better? Right? If only, then my life would be great. 
And when you can fill those blanks in, and you know enough of somebody's story to fill the blanks in, then you know what they think will save them. If only then. Does that make sense? Okay. So how do, they, how do they expect to experience salvation? How do they expect to move into a place of having a sense that they're dignified and worthy, that they have some significance, that there is, uh, everybody's looking. Uh, this is another part of the world as it is right now that is so much more fun to minister in, is everybody now wants to have some sense of significance. Some sense that I, can, that I want to and I can make a difference. It's beautiful. This is one of the very best things about ministering in Seattle is everybody that you talk to wanted to make some dent in some problem. It's like, yes, this is awesome because the Christian story hooks to that like nobody's business. It's a huge advantage for ministering now. Um, People have sort of gotten off of the exclusively life is about me sense that pervaded here for a couple of generations. All right. Where do people come from? Where do they get their sense of identity? What's broken? Or who do they blame for it? How do they expect to experience small s salvation and have some sense of significance? And then glory. What do they think could produce final satisfaction in their life? And remember that most of the people you're going to talk to think that if some situation over here, with there only being one, right? That some result could yield over here. Um, So let's see if I can say this uh, carefully without getting myself into too much trouble. Um, A sense of care and stewardship for creation is appropriate for Christians. Language in Genesis 1 was was to priest the garden, to care for it, to steward it, develop it, make it flourish all over the world. But caring for the world that God has given us is an appropriate Christian dynamic. Believing that all is lost. If we don't fix all that is broken in creation is not a distinctively Christian aspect of life. But if all you have is creation and that all is lost if we mess it up, you'd act pretty rabid too. So realize what's underneath that set of emotions. Um, the Miracles and I were talking about this, just about the broader themes within COVID. And um, one of the things that was uh, alarming to me as someone who looks at longer cultural trends and Christian history and things like that, is that um, I heard a, a news article um, on the mainstream news that was talking about how some people were getting really frustrated with Christians because Christians didn't seem to think that COVID was a big deal. Now, I think there's a delicate line here, right? Um, it's important to love your neighbors. And if your neighbors didn't feel loved because of how you reacted to COVID, that is a problem. Okay? That's a problem. On the other hand, non-Christians were observing Christians as though they didn't have one life to live. And that produced a tension. And they were both true in the same space with different people. And it had to be careful to figure out which was it, right? But indeed, we don't have only one life to live. And this one happens to be the short and crappy one. 
It used to be before all this technology and the development of industrial farming and all this kind of stuff or whatever, 75, before the Industrial Revolution, my favorite statistics, before the Industrial Revolution, 75% of all people everywhere across all cultures at all times had, been, had spent all of their time merely in the cultivation of food. 75% of all people at all time across all cultures before the Industrial Revolution, all they did was make sure that the rest of us, them and the other 25%, had food. Um, life was described pre-industrial revolution appropriately as nasty, brutish, and short. Perhaps mercifully short. So we experienced something because of our wealth and development and things like that that most of our forebears would have had no knowledge of. Had no experience of. So long lives that are fairly um, pain-free and, and disease-free uh, is a, a brand new thing in the last 150 years. All right. We have to be careful with that. If, if you had no hope outside of this life, and I'm a Christian, and it appears that I don't care that you have no hope outside of this life, you're going to be pretty pissed at me. On the other hand, if I'm being considerate and kind, loving, and it's obvious to you, and I'm not put off as easily with COVID as you are, it might provoke some interest and some intrigue. And I might get to tell you about the hope that lies within me. Because I don't have one life to live. I have two. And one's a lot longer and a lot better. People, what was going on in COVID is that people had a sense that any opportunity for glory was going to be cut off for them. That they were never going to get to the place of satisfaction and security. That that opportunity, the one opportunity that they had, was going to be lost. So you have to recognize that that's underneath the emotions of people who experienced COVID with merely this in mind. And you could see why there was maybe some wonder and some frustration. Make sure you read it right. Ask more questions. Okay? So, when you hear people's stories, this is what you're looking for. What do they think their best life could be lived? What are their dreams? What do they think could bring them satisfaction and security? All right. Um, that's what you're looking for when you ask someone their story. Um, when I ask someone their story, I actually just ask them. I'm going to walk this way as I go. I actually just ask. I'll, again, I will do this tomorrow. Jeff, I did this with Jeff the first time I met him. Um, it's my common habit. I will just ask somebody can you tell me the 5, 10, 15, 20-minute version of your life? Whatever you'd like to share. And they'll start, they're like, they're usually confused because <laughs> no one's ever asked them the question before. And they'll start, and I'll start to draw their story out of them. And I'll say, well, okay, well, I'll, I'll help you get started. You know, what, well, where were you born? Um, did, you, did you grow up with siblings? Well, where were you born? Why, 
why were you, why did you live there? An interesting story to ask uh, along the way um, is, what did your dad do? Um, so, uh, you know, where were you born? How many siblings did you have? What was family life like growing up? Uh, when I was 18, my, this is a snippet from my wife's story. When I was 18, I went to college. I left the bedroom. I slept in the bedroom before I went to college that I had grown up in. And when I came home for Christmas, I slept on my sister's couch because my parents had gotten divorced and the house had been sold. And my mother my mother was living with my sister. And so I slept on the couch for Christmas. Now that's a, that's a big piece of my wife's story. That was, I met her three years after that had happened. That was a big piece of my wife's story. Actually made it hard for her to get married. Okay, so if you're listening and you hear people's origin story and you hear what's formed them, what you're, the way to imagine it is as you're walking along and you're asking good questions, you're walking down a hallway. And as people share things, this is the way I envision it for myself. That's helpful. Hopefully it is for you. Is I imagine that there are doors that pop up. And I'm like, oh, okay. Dad's not in the picture. That's a door, right? Um, and so as you're walking along, you're hearing their story. You're seeing these doors sort of appear. The first time you're just hearing the story. You're not asking follow-up questions. You don't have any idea really what, how to respond to somebody. You're just listening to the story. And you're trying to get from birth to them being in front of you right now. And as you listen and ask good questions, what the Lord, and I pray for this, that it happens, that the Lord gives you these doors that pop up that later on you can walk through and ask a question. Um, I've just started coaching a guy who his previous ministry, he moved just before the pandemic to plant a church in Arizona. It was meant to be uh, a church that was planted. Um, there were going to be some people and money that came from here and some people and money that came from here. And they were both going to give people and money and he was going to plant a church in the middle between the two of them. And this church ended up imploding and this church ended up getting too small to help. And he ended up being stuck in the middle, lonely with nothing. He's 38. And they just found out, they're happy but surprised that his wife's having a fourth child. And I just met him. That's a set of things to talk about. Because that'll, that'll put a dent in your life. Right? So you're walking along, you're asking questions, you're trying to find out what was your family like growing up? Did you go to college or did you go right to work? What kind of work did you do? Why did you do that? Why have you lived the places that you've lived? What made you move to here? Have you had relationships, married, divorced, single the whole way along, whatever? And you're trying to get to the point where you understand that it makes sense to you how this person ended up in front of you in Hampton, Virginia. That's what you're trying to do. Does that make sense? Okay, so when I say hear someone's story, if, as you get better at this, um, nearly consistently, it happens to me, I ask preachers to share in 10 minutes 
because, well, you know how preachers are. (laughs) And 10 minutes is typically uh, at least 30. Um, I actually, the first time that I start coaching somebody, I tell them, "Can can you tell me the 20 to 30 minute version? And I expect it to take an hour and a half. Because if you are um, genuine and you listen and you ask good questions and you show yourself to be somebody who's safe, even with dangerous personal knowledge, people, people will talk to you. Um, I can't tell you the privilege of this of being able to, to steward the stories of people's lives for their good and because you genuinely love them. Um, Paul said to Timothy, I'm going to quote it wrong, so I'm going to flip to it so I don't. Um, when I, I told you the story of, I forgot to tell my wife this last night, I'll tell her tonight, but um, I think she knows it, but I, I like her to know it. Um, near the end of Philippians 2, after the wonderful uh, him about Jesus and uh, that our humility ought to issue from our understanding um, his coming. Uh, Paul later in Philippians 2 talks about these uh, co-workers. It's a section in the ESV at least that's titled, that's the title over it is Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus, this is um, Paul speaking in Philippians 2, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. When I first met my wife and she realized that uh, how broken I was because of my family background and the good and bad experiences that I had had, and that I, that I really was very underdeveloped relationally, earnest for the Lord, thankfully, but woefully underdeveloped relationally, she said, Matt, this needs to become your theme verse for a long time. You need to ask the Lord to help you become genuinely concerned for other people. And um, most of the people that I meet now are like, we can't even imagine that you were not like this. And I'm like, that's because God works. That's all I can tell you. That I would be the one telling you how to do this <laughs> some 30, 30 years hence is, is a miracle, and I mean it. But this is what Paul said about Timothy, and this is something that I pray for myself, and you should maybe pray for yourself, that you would be genuinely concerned for others' welfare, genuinely interested in them. One of the reasons why I like to preach what I did this morning in the context of these um, of a, a conference like this is that, um, and why I like commending the, the Keller sermon is called Blessed Self-Forgetfulness. The booklet is called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Just search self-forgetfulness and you'll find one of the two. Um, one of the reasons why I like referring to that and referring people to it um, is in there, the self-forgetfulness quote is actually Keller quoting Lewis, who talks about in the end of his chapter about humility and pride. He, Lewis talks about that if you meet a genuinely humble person, they, that's not actually the way that you would like, interpret your interaction with them. The way you'd interpret their interaction was um, that 
they were genuinely interested in you. They didn't have to get from the conversation something for themselves. They weren't in the conversation for themselves. They were in the conversation for your sake. Um, and so this is, I think, uh, what God wants to shape in us. So as you're drawing someone's story out of them, if you, let me give you some pointers towards this. If you look on the next uh, full page, you'll see there um, some questions. Um, this is from Tim Downs' very helpful book, Finding Common Ground. He was actually a trainer with crew, might still be when I was a crew missionary. Um, most of this text that's here uh, is stuff that Downs has wrote. There's a little bit that's got bracketed that, that, um, um, that, that I have sort of added along the way. But questions about a listener's background, questions asking the listener's opinion or advice, questions that involve the listener's imagination, questions that ask for the listener's emotions. And what's good about this is it gets you to be a more creative, more thoughtful um, asker of questions. Um, and so uh, that's a good, it's a good help. There's more in his book that's very, very helpful. Um, he's the source of the analogy about um, planting tomato plants instead of just picking tomatoes. So this sort of cultivating over time relationship with somebody and helping to see the fruit grow up. Um, so it, as you're learning how to, to hear people's stories, this is what you're looking for. Everyone's story evidences these four domains because they live in a world where it is true that there was a creation, there was a fall, there is hope for redemption, and we have a sense inside of us of glory. And so everyone evidences that in their story. It's impossible not to. They couldn't not evidence that they live in the story. They don't know it. They're not conscious of it, right? They've written a sort of a different story, more than likely, that's over here, right? So um, I think it's wonderful, for example, that the James Webb telescope is making everyone scratch their heads again. Maybe the Big Bang wasn't exactly how it happened. Um, and I think that's awesome. Um, I had science background, and I was a Big Bang guy, right? So materialist, atheist, right? So um, anyhow, I think that, that everyone has a sense of that. They actually can't avoid it. Everyone tries to write some story that makes sense to them because they find themselves in the midst of a story that feels very confusing. Everyone has that sense. They're in, they got dropped into the middle of a story. And they're like, oh, okay, um, how do you make sense of this? Um, we must have come from somewhere. There must be some explanation for how things got as messed up as they are now. There's got to be some way that it could be better, that it could be made better. And there's some perfect place that we could end up where life would be great. So I put it a couple of different ways to help you see that that is exactly what people do. They try and make sense of the story. And if you ask them thoughtful questions, they'll tell you what their answers are. 
as they try and make sense of this. They'll tell you the components of the story for them. And that's what you're listening for. The reason, maybe it's obvious, the reason that you're listening for those components is when you understand them, they make for interesting opportunities for um, a bit, uh, a vignette of gospel conversation. So, flip back in your notes to the just previous page. Actually, it's for me, I just had to flip it like this. All right, so um, let's, let's just take one area and then we'll keep moving on. So let's take uh, Big Bang, just because it's a fun one and it's where I was, right? And people had to engage me about it, right? So you find out that I think that the origin of all humans, including me, is the Big Bang, okay? How do you, how do you, how do you go forward with somebody like that? So they don't believe that <clears throat> the world was made, uh, the world at one time did not exist, and it was made at a point by a personal infinite creator who's distinct from the world, right? So they think that the the creative matter always was. It's actually, anyways, um, there's an, here I'll give you one of my other favorite little factoids. Um, we observe um, that atoms stay together. So we observe how atoms operate. And in fact, all of science, all of material technology, the reason the building holds together is we have observed the way that these kinds of atoms work when you put them in these particular kinds of combinations. Sorry, a little wonky for the non-science folks. But, right, I mean, a chair stays and has the integrity of a chair because we understand the properties of the metal and we understand that, generally speaking, this combination of metal can hold X amount of weight and we can do it at this price point and we can sell it to people and so we make a chair. But do you know that scientists do not know why atoms keep operating the way that they do? There is no sense of necessity. There are not sufficient forces to keep them operating the way that they do. I like to think of them as each of them being the personal hobby of their creator. And that he keeps each one just as they are because he likes to and he enjoys it and enjoys blessing us with the constancy of the way the world is that he has made. Most people don't have any sense of wonder about the world that they live in. There is no sense of wonder about the Big Bang. It's a convenient explanation that keeps me out from the authority of the God that I'm avoiding, that I agree with, but it gives me no sense at all of, skip down in your diagram, any sense that I could ever have any significance at all, because I and everything are a cosmic accident. There is no meaning, there is no rhythm, there is no rhyme, there is no reason to sing so, as you learn how people think the world came from, you can skip sort of between topics and, and ask kind questions and say, huh, that's not the way that I think the world happened. How, how do you get from that to um, 
All humans have value. See, there's all kinds of things that we value still in our culture that um, are vestiges, they're leftovers of our culture being influenced by a worldview like this. And human rights is actually one of them. Um, if you understand that trajectory, right, human rights flow from the fact that we're all image bearers, and so each person has dignity and worth, and so we ought to treat them that way. That's the flow of how human rights came into existence in Western culture. Most people have no idea of that. If you're over here, the reason why you can get things like you can marry your dog, or you can marry a tree, both have happened, is because here, everything is merely horizontal. All pieces of this singular are equally valuable. So people desperately want to be valuable themselves, but they're actually more honest if they marry their dog or they marry a tree. They're actually being more consistent with their worldview. Why prefer humans? Which is why some people just come out straight up and just said, we don't prefer humans anymore. Is because there is actually no preference for humans over here. Everything actually is equal. There is no distinction. There is no hierarchy. So, if you start, I'm kind of throwing a lot out there. Anyways, but if you start down the road with somebody and you find out what beliefs they actually have, and you think through it, and you ask them, okay, how, how do you get from here to here? And they say, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, it, it, within the worldview that I've got, here's why all humans have rights. Oh. You mean it's Christianity that said all human beings have inherent dignity and worth, the very thing that I am looking for? You're saying that's what, that's what this worldview says? And now you've got a conversation going. Because you can't root that over here. Humans are no more significant than anything else over here. Over here, the very thing that our hearts cry for, this is what speaks to that. Now, I've given you one sort of extended example, right? But what you're looking for is you listen to someone's story and you get to know them better and you understand their sense of creation, fall, redemption, and glory is you're looking for those doors, right? Take notes. I'm terrible. (laughs) On the one hand, I take copious notes because I talk with a lot of people. Jeff's like one of 15 people that I coach right now and I can't keep their stories straight and what I've told somebody straight or whatever. So I take copious notes. Um, Most uh, a lot of human um, things my brain can hold on to. And I can kind of shuffle to the person's, my brother-in-law calls it, shuffling to their card, like the old Rolodex. Do you remember said those? Right? But you have sort of a mental card, and you're like, oh, that's right, that's this person. Right? That's TJ. He's got Milo. Okay. All right. I forget out who that is. Okay. Um, but if that's not the way your brain works, that's fine. Write it down. Buy a whole pack of those cards. That's the point of them. So as you would go and you would ask the people who are on your cards, you may have known them for a while. That's okay. Ask them their story. And be okay with not being great at it the first time or the second time or the third time. 
That's all right. Love them genuinely. Ask them their story. You'll notice that the backside of the card is blank. Write it down. What are the doors that you can pray over? That you can walk through? One of the ones with my brother's girlfriend is, Dad's not there. All right? I can see why she would want to be in relationship with somebody with a stable family where dad is there and where the kids have experienced stable relationship and all of that. I can understand why that is, but as we very freely say to our children, um, you know that's a broken package. We say that to our adult kids. That's a broken package. It's okay. Broken packages need loving but you need to understand what you're getting into. And if the Lord calls you to love this particular person, that's awesome. In fact, every one of us is a broken package. Some of us more apparently than others, and some with more deleterious effects than others. Um, Cass and I were talking yesterday, substance abuse counselor, both of my uh, father's parents were alcoholics. My grandmother was a violent drunk. Um, my grandparents had um, their kids in batches. So there's my uh, oldest aunt and my dad in the old batch and um, my younger aunt and my younger uncle in the younger batch. And my grandmother was violent enough that the two oldest siblings who got out of the house as fast as they could and got married went back into the home that they grew up in, removed their two younger siblings from the home and finished raising them themselves. And so my uncle, who was born drunk, catch the import of that, he was born drunk, so fetal alcohol syndrome, has never had uh, a sane day in his life. We lost touch with him for 18 years, assumed him dead. There are people whose lives are more apparently broken than others and have more deleterious effects than others. It is true. Um, my uncle, um, my um, son's uh, girlfriend, previous girlfriend, we really liked, was also a broken package. This is actually one of my concerns for him, and I need to have a conversation with him about it. Is um, he uh, seems to land on wounded ducks, and that is something I've observed about him. So we just need to have a conversation about it so we can become more self-conscious of what he's doing. Previous girlfriend, everybody, anybody watch the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast? Anybody ever listen to it? A couple of you? One of the people interviewed in that podcast um, is dear family friends of ours. And their oldest daughter dated the same son. And when they started dating, we told our son, um, you realize that she's broken. she has grown up in something that became very, very broken related to church, and that's going to have a big effect on her. So um, everyone, because they are sinners broken into a sinful world, experiences brokenness. All of us are broken packages, just in different ways and with different kinds of effects. Every single person you're going to talk to is a broken package. And 
kindly, gently entering into their particular sense of brokenness, personal, done to them, done by them, is, is a, a gentle stewardship, if that makes sense. You become the steward of their story. You help carry it with them. That is, in a sense, from a very different perspective, the task of evangelism in this kind of day and age. That's what it means to walk in relationship with people. That's what it means to get to know their story well enough that you know their sense of creation, fall, redemption, and glory. When you do, then you have permission to begin to try and figure out how to bring the gospel to them. Um, And I would say not until then that they should know that you love them before you try and speak anything to them. That's why I think you need this kind of, this sense of committed relationship to people that you pray over them, you pray over these doors, you, they know you're committed to them. Um, and once you do, once you know what doors you could possibly walk through, you can begin to walk through them and ask more questions. So, when you were 18, you went off to college, you left the bed that you slept in, you came back and slept on your sister's couch. How has that effect affected your relationships? That's a door to walk through. Right? Oof. Both your parents were alcoholics, and you were one of the kids who got taken out of the home when you were 16, and you were raised by your brother and his wife. Okay? What kind of effect did that have on you? How does that still affect you today? Right? So you're, you're looking for those doors to walk through and ask the next question. Right? If you turn to the last page in your note pack, you'll find that this is that dense on the front and the back. This is um, this very robust uh, gospel outline. Again, I'll tell you the reason why I like this one. Um, And let me give you a, a caveat first before I go there. So, the... The caveat is, this outline starts, you'll notice, uh, number one, who is God? It starts proclaiming God as creator. That's good and appropriate and right. It's where Paul starts in Acts 17, right? The God who made heaven and earth, right? Okay, so I'm not saying that starting with creation is the wrong place to present the gospel. It absolutely is the right place. But if you have discovered that you have somebody over here, you've talked about their personal beliefs, their religious upbringing, that they grew up in church, you know, you've got lots of questions already that have happened, right? If you find out that someone is actually over here, the least you have to do is ask, how did you get there? How did you come to believe that? What's comforting about believing that? How is that working for you? You've at least got to ask that bevy of questions, right? Um, but also, I think over here, 
it, the least you have to do as you begin to proclaim the gospel is to say, hey, can I tell you a little bit about the Christian worldview? It's very, very different than yours. We might even use some of the same words, but, they're, but I'm meaning different things by them. And it's okay if you don't believe them, but I do want you to know that I am saying something different. I am not saying God, lowercase g, as though all of us have a spark of divinity or a little bit of God in each one of us. It's a common belief among many people, right? A way of evidencing that we're all spiritual, right? But not religious. What I mean is, I mean an infinite personal God distinct from the world that he made, who made everything including us. And you can, even if someone's not over here yet, believing this, you're trying to show them the beauty of it, the goodness of it, the beautiful fragrance of Christ is where you're trying to get to, right? But you do have to bracket it for people and make sure that they don't get confused. That when you say God, they think you mean this, okay? Um, and it, it may take you some for someone to even be willing to hear stuff from this side because they view this as, particularly in our culture now, authoritarian. Um, this actually violates people's rights, right? Because that's the way that, sadly, sometimes they've experienced Christians or those who, who profess Christ, particularly in the political realm, right? And so... Um, people are going to have some built-in sort of defenses because of what they've experienced and say, okay, could I, could I talk to you about how it's also sinners who profess faith in Christ and we mess it up sometimes? And here's what the simple message says. And see if you can get somebody that will be willing um, to listen. As you look at this outline, just the top level here, um, that, that the, just the, the top level bold categories... We begin with who is God. We talk about that real life is God-centered living. That the problem is self-centered living, which actually, interestingly, um, people will now recognize as actually problematic. It's fascinating. The changes through time. Right? That they'll recognize self-centered living as problematic. Um, then on the back... That Christ is the way back to life. So across here bridges the, the void, right? And then the response, coming home to Jesus. So across the top level, uh, this has the same features of most gospel outlines. Um, many outlines exist. They've got good features. I, I like this one because it starts almost far enough back for most people. You may have to start farther back. With many people you do because this is practically where they are and you need to distinguish it. But it starts far enough back. It doesn't assume that people are understanding that they are under the authority of God because he made them. But that's the beginning point of the gospel. Is that if, how is it that I could be under God's wrath there's a backward trajectory from there that says he made everything. He made humans. He knows what's best for them. He told us what's best for us. I'm not a fan of that. He's mad at me for that. And so I'm justly under his wrath. So there's a trajectory of beliefs there that end up at that conclusion spot. 
but you've got to go all the way back and build all of them. Does that make sense? You've got to go back for most people and build all of that for them because they, don't, they couldn't draw that trajectory for themselves. So, we'll go back to number one. We'll do a little bit more detail. Josh, when am I supposed to be done? Where's Josh? Before seven. Okay. What? Leave time for questions. Talk faster. I think that's what he said. All right. I'm just going to do the top levels. You all can read, Lord willing. And so I'm just going to walk the trajectory. Now, before I walk the trajectory with you, let me remind you of something. A single gospel vignette will probably only hit one of these smaller bolded points. And that's all it needs to hit. Remember, I had somewhere north of 100 hours of conversations with people before I came to Christ. It, giving, trying to lay too much down at one time, asking too many questions, pushing too much is likely to not get you the next conversation. One conversation's design is to get the next conversation. Be content to make one point, raise a point, have a good time, make sure you get the next time. Okay? All right, so who's God? I'm just going to go across the outline, just hitting the bold points. Who's God? God made everyone. He's a love giver. He's a law maker. What's the point? God made you. You belong to Him. Your account will follow instructions in a relationship of love centered on Him. And it gives you some, um, some Bible basis, some illustrations, some transition. Okay? What's real life? It's God-centered living. Uh, God designed uh, a one-way road, walking in righteousness. Love God perfectly, love others completely. He's got two rules. Those are the rules. They need to be kept. Have you kept them? Okay, so trying to, by the power of the Spirit, help people see that they actually have uh, not kept them. What does it look like when I don't keep God's rules? I don't love God perfectly. I don't love others completely. And God's law is broken. I've lived self-centered. And so uh, I fail to obey and love God. And that's properly called by God sin. The result of that is that sin separates me from God. Right? So I try and do these things, but I fail. And sin is rightly punished by God of justice. He can't just overlook evil. Being self-centered is not just a fault. It's a problem with God. And so sin separates us from God, and that puts us on the road to eternal homelessness uh, and hell. So that's uh, the bad news side uh, of the equation. Metzger's uh, coming home model here. Flip to the back side. Is there some solution to this? Yes, Jesus Christ. He is the way back to life. Uh, classic sort of university model here, right? Provides a bridge back to him. He keeps the rules for life. You heard me say this in a different way this morning, that we've got two problems and Jesus provides both solutions. Okay, so it's, I'm going to give you a, some variety, right? How to say it. He keeps the rules for life. He takes the punishment for our sin. He rises from the dead to give us hope and to prove that payment was made sufficiently. And again, in all these, there's Bible and illustrations 
and kind of a concluding point. And God calls all men everywhere to repentance in light of the coming judgment. So actually asking people, hey, what do you think of this? Are you ready to come home? God, your maker, calls you back to him. He calls you to turn. So you see, even in the way that I preach the gospel in the midst of a sermon, I actually demonstrate turning physically. That's conscious by me, right? Because I think that's what it is, right? We turn from self-salvation. That's all that there is over here, by the way, is self-salvation. All there is over here is self, but there's uh, self-salvation. We turn from self-salvation to salvation through Christ, right? So God calls you back to him. You turn and repent. You trust in faith. And um, classic, I think, in, in most... Um, uh, most of the campus ministries, including crew, is really sort of putting the question to people. Uh, doing really what Paul did at the end of Acts 17. He calls men everywhere to repent in light of the judgment. How about you? And so at some point, um, and this can be done <laughs> um, bluntly, poorly, or gently and kindly, are you, are you ready to come home? Right. Eventually, in the story of the two prodigals, right, the younger one that goes off, right, that that question, the father standing there, looking, watching, waiting. Are you ready to come home yet? Because I'm ready to receive you if you are. And so people have to have that sense from us that that's what God's like because it's what they've experienced from us. That we're there. God says He makes His appeal through us. And the call of the Gospel, it is command. It is repent and believe. But it is, it is, it is kind, generous, merciful plea. Won't you come home? That's what people need to sense and feel from us. Right? Is that that's what the message of the Gospel is. Won't you come home? All right, that's what I got for you. Jeff asked me to leave time for questions, so we do have that. And so, ready, set, shoot. I'm going to try and repeat the question so that everybody can hear it, maybe for the sake of the recording. Um, And so, anyways, I will do a good attempt at that. Yes, sir? Yes, so the question is, um, have, have I found good usefulness out of retelling uh, biblical stories, and has that resonated well with people? Um, I have not made a ton of use of that myself. Um, we, I do know a missionary who has actually done a lot of work of this um, as he's ministered in South Africa, but among um, Native uh, Africans, because most of the way that they transmit knowledge 
particularly in the areas that are not literate, is through the use of story. And so I think it's, uh, so while I, have not, while I have not used it a lot, it very much excites me as an idea because lots of people respond well if you say, can I tell you a story? Um, uh, uh, St. Clair Ferguson did a sermon series some years ago uh, at First AAP in Columbia on the parables. And the title of the series was The Sting in His Tail. Which is clever and really helpful because Jesus told parables because it was a way to, to let a truth sneak up on someone. Even if you think about the way that Nathan approached David, it was a story that snuck up on someone. So, I commend it. I think it takes a lot of, of time, practice, and preparation. Um, it takes a lot of you knowing the stories well enough to retell them faithfully and for it to be the appropriate one at the time. But I think it can be very, very powerful. Question? Yes, sir. Sorry, I should have made clear. Do it after the conversation. <laughs> Mental notes during the conversation, written notes afterwards. Great question. So for me, the way that I think about it is if I've got a door. So I've got a door about some feature of someone's life. Um, um, one of my good friends in Seattle um, his daughter is, his son is adopted. And he's adopted because the son's uh, les married lesbian couple parents died in a horrific car crash. And he knew them, and so he adopted their son. Fascinating story with all kinds of layers in it, right? Just about that one feature. And the son had all kinds of problems, and we always talked about the son. Anyways, so... Tell me about how you became friends with this couple. So I'm, I'm opening a door that I don't know where it goes, but I've prayed over some things that I might, might get the opportunity to say along the way. And so that's the way that I think about it, right? Is I've got really, of these bolded points that are there, there might be only one that I'm trying to make a point about. And I'm hoping when I walk through that door that I get that opportunity. So I pray for it. I do it thoughtfully, intelligently, Lord willing. I walk through that door and see what the opportunity is that the Lord gives. 
And sometimes it's kind of like, oh, it was random. We worked together. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Not a lot I can do with that. But it was like, you know, we were neighbors and I was there and I officiated their wedding and I was committed to them and to their family. Oh, wow. You know, now you have, if you open the door, now you have a path you can walk out in the story, right? And so you're looking, and I'm praying over the doors, really, and what could be on the other side and maybe what could be said. That's about the way that I do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Vignettes, yeah. Right, but I think that it's they if they're very far away and there's lots of dominoes that need to fall, you're trying to help different dominoes fall, right, over time. That's the way that I look at it, without a need for it to be this domino this time, or these dominoes in this order. I think of it more like there's a constellation of them, and each one's got to get kicked over at a certain point, right? That's the way that I think about it, if that makes sense. Change the analogy. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I, I I think that there's sort of I'm I'm of two minds. Um. One is um I've got uh. I have limited time. I have limited opportunity. Um, I try and build into as many people as I can, know as many people as I can, love as many people as I can, but I'm also finite. And if I come across somebody and their, their particular moment in life, they're not able to, to share much. Um, I'll stick with them. I'll love them as I meet them in groups sort of situations or whatever, but I'm probably going to look for somebody where the spirit's gone from before me a little bit. Um, it, I, that's one mind. I think the second is sometimes just people need you to stick with them long enough. I can remember beginning this process in 2008 in Seattle, self-consciously going, joining a gym, starting to play racquetball with a group of people. It, I was about ready to cash in and do something else because it took me a year before people would let me in. And I was like, blah, maybe all these people have an established friend group and you can't break into this or whatever. And I just talked to a friend about it and he's like, you know, just give it some more time. Let them know you're really there. Sure. Okay. It took a year. And then my wife and I finally got invited to something. We got invited to more things. Ended up on trips with these guys, you know, and ended up as the chaplain of the group. But it took, it took a year also made lifetime friends. So well worth it. So, 
if it's a group situation where um, you know you, you can keep just loving the person and being near them and listening and hey, what are you doing this weekend? You know, something that's more pedestrian, but they might offer something, but they can tell that you do steward it well, then maybe you get more opportunity down the road. Yeah. Other questions? Yes, sir. In the, all the way in the back in the red shirt. Oh, I do get this question occasionally. Um, Yeah, so um, I think that you can get better at it with practice. It helps if you do it as a couple, if you can. So we like having people in our home and asking them, particularly... um, if, if they are skittish at all, my wife, were she here today, you could experience this from her, can make a tree talk. Um, she's the least, um, I, I can come across as intimidating, she reminds me. Um, and she is the least intimidating thing that you've ever seen on the planet. And genuinely interested in everyone that she's ever met. She's a beautiful human being. So uh, we tend to do a fair bit of this together if we can. Um, but she's also taught me, and so now I can do it. So I do have, I will, I will say, the Lord gave me a brain that holds on to a lot of things. Um, but I also have limitations myself, which is why I take copious notes. Because I take copious notes because I want to love the person well the next time I talk to them, not just this time. And if you remember things, even if you had to go and write it down and then look at the note card the next time you get together with someone, if you remember stuff about them, no matter what way it is, you will have, you have no idea what kind of effect that has on someone that you cared enough to remember. makes a big impact in people. That's worth it. Yes, ma'am. And when you go through this door, um, how are you friends with the lesbian couple? Oh, actually, my wife and I were friends with one of the members of the lesbian couple when they were married to a guy. Oh. So now I've learned you were married. That's the, how we got the other kid. And you were friends with this couple. And then this person came out as a lesbian. And then they got married. And you stayed friends with them, and that's how you ended up adopting their son. And so you've got a whole trajectory that sort of goes out, right? And so it, to me, um, there it is. Now, I'm talkative, and I enjoy it, so you have to kind of put up with that. But there's, unless someone cuts you off, there is not necessarily the reason of the end of a conversation, the reason conversations end typically is people either get tired or they get um, insecure or scared um, or you weren't good enough to keep the conversation going. And I'm not trying to be critical overly, but conversation is a learned skill. And most of us haven't applied ourselves to it. And it's what the gospel needs for people. Yes, ma'am. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so how does it change um, when family's involved? So I'll give you, I'll give you a couple... Um, uh, a couple of vignettes just of me. My family's all unbelieving. So uh, this is a live question actually for me. So I'll give you a couple just in my own family. Um, you know, long time prayer, sharing, getting shut down. Right. Anyways, long, difficult history for 33 years. Um, my brother and I changed jobs the same week. We had both had the same jobs for 20 years and we both changed jobs the same week. I thought that was a fascinating providence myself. And my brother recommended a book to me about why he was changing jobs. You better believe that I bought that book and read it and we talked about it. Because he let me in in a way to his life in a way that he hadn't before. And this is 33 years I've known the Lord. So I think it's, it's, it's patience and time and opportunity and commitment, especially to your own family. Um, that book, by the way, which is fascinating, and you should read it, um, is, um, oh, Jeff, I recommended it to you for your sabbatical, and I'm losing it. Oh, um, Shop Class as Soul Craft. Shop class as soul craft. And it will give you insight into the people around you who do information jobs, which is most all of us, um, and how it, it corrodes and erodes people's souls and how they look for something else. It's a marvelous, marvelous book. So that's one. The second one is just sticking in the game. Um, Year of COVID, late um, twenty fall of twenty twenty, um, my dad had a health emergency. He was in the hospital. I got the dreaded call from my mother. I think you need to hop on a plane. And the call when you live across the country that you never want to get. We scramble. I get in a plane, and it was COVID. And basically, what it was was. My mom and my brother and I would go to the hospital during visiting hours, which were short. They were only four to seven at night, and you, only one person could be in the room with them at a time. And so we would each get an hour in that three-hour block to go visit him. And I, in the couple of hours that I had over three days with my dad, two days with my dad, I think it was three days that I was there, because he got better, thankfully, um, we had the most insightful and interesting spiritual conversation that we'd ever had. I think probably because it was only he and I, which we never get. It's usually in the presence of my mother. My mother is much more overtly like this. My dad grew up Catholic. He's bitter about it. It didn't help him very much, but he has much more vestige of this. Uh, my mother has much more overtly this. And, um, he wanted to talk. And it didn't matter how much that plane ticket cost because I actually got to talk with him. So some of it, I think, is sticking in the long term and continuing to love. That's what I think it is. It's hard right now for me. My mother is um, deep into dementia. I have to introduce myself when I call on the phone. Um, and it, 
it's hard. It's the most difficult thing I think I've been through relationally. Um, and it's worth it. The Holy Spirit works when we love and we care and we stay committed. And I trust in that. So, that's a few thoughts. At least for me personally. Mr. Jeff has a question. Oh, Jeff says we have one more question. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, all right. So I'll give you. I'll give you at least one idea. Um, real conversation opportunity. Hey, I was thinking about you this weekend. That's actually fascinating. If you've been praying for somebody and you actually have been thinking about them, and it's not just a, a way in, but it's true. People are like, you think about me when it's not work. And they get the distinct impression it's because you actually care about them, right? That they're not the, I appreciate Cord's honesty, just about people as functional units, right? If they get the sense that they're not simply that for you, they're not simply a functional unit, but a person. I was thinking about you this weekend, and I, at some point along the way, I seem to remember you, you told me that you have a brother, is that right? Am I remembering right? Okay. Now you're back in the story and it's not uncomfortable or odd. Right? Um, and I, 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 that's a very common entry point for me. When I'm coming up to, when I want to walk through a new door with somebody, I'll say, nah, ah, your son, he was the son of the lesbian couple that was in the car crash or whatever. I, is that right? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Whatever. It's like, how did you, how did you know them? Right? Okay, so I've known the story for a while, but I want to pick up the thread. And I can pick up the thread just by saying, this was like jumbling around in my brain. And I was trying to like figure, am I remembering that right? And you're just being interested in them. So that's, that's the way I do it. Does that help? You're welcome. All right, um, I'm going to pray for you all. <clears throat> I would really encourage you churches that have done this within the past, uh, the best fruit that they see from this is when these cards appear in your hands and they appear in your prayers that you do together. So making it part of your parlance, who are your three, is a great way for the culture of the church to change through time. New people will walk into the church and they're like, what is this? Who are your three? Oh, let us tell you about it. And that's how it becomes more of the culture of the church through time. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you that the origin of any of us uh, coming to know you is that you have this kind of love and commitment to us as individuals. Uh, a pre-love and commitment. Uh, a choosing by you to set your love on the unworthy. Because that's what you're like. And it's stunning and wonderful 
to enjoy and to bask and to live within that glorious truth. And to appreciate you and be grateful to you and to receive your love. So help us to do that, to realize that your love is like that. And having received love like that, that we would give love like that. That we would be ones who through time as we grow, by your working in His Holy Spirit, that we would be ones who take a genuine interest in the welfare of others. That we love our real neighbors where we live, work, and play. And that they know that we love them. And that we're for them. We're committed to them. And that we care about them. Help my friends here to be those kinds of people. Help us to continue to do to want to do and to actually do the one thing that we can do here that we can't do in the new heavens and new earth, which is to give you away. Help us too, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.